Thank you, uh, praise team and choir. What a beautiful job, I tell you, man. I, uh, I told them I was inspired last week's sermon by hearing them practice that on Wednesday night, and so it kind of... But we are blessed. I, I don't know if you all realize that. We have wonderful musicians, um, Susan and Bob, Bobby, that play for us on Sundays. This is a um, very gifted and talented, and I appreciate their work and, and, and all they do. Uh, this morning, we're in 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. 1 Kings 19, 1. Um, very familiar passage. I even alluded to it last week. So as those that are able would like to stand as we read his word. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, ate, and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the, Lord, and the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart, scattered, shattered the rocks before them, before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat and Abel-Meholoth, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in, in, in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all those whose mouths have not kissed him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So we begin this story with Ahab. He's the king. This man was not a good man. He decided to follow after Baal. He was going to do all that. 
He was married to that Jezebel. Now, we've even heard that word Jezebel around before. It's kind of a, a negative term we use because this Jezebel was not a nice person either. But she seemed to be calling the shots. I don't know if you all pick up on that, but it seems like, who's really in charge? Jezebel. Now, we... We all know that that's a lot of the cases in most of our marriages, you know, we kind of, uh, you know, that we, we may look like we're in charge guys, but most of the time we're not. And um, they just um, find that to be the case here. Jezebel was calling the shots and, and she must have been something because she struck fear in people's lives. She really, I mean, when she's, people were afraid of this lady, she was not one that you wanted to mess with. Now, to catch the real gist of this story you really have to kind of think back to 18 chapter 18 many of you remember at that time Elisha had challenged the prophets of Baal to a duel basically of sacrifices they were going to put a sacrifice he said you'd have Baal send down fire and burn up your sacrifice and of course they tried all day and 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 good old Elijah he kind of even taunted him come on where's your God he's great he can do it come on come on where is he what's he doing he taunted him and nothing happened so he says, okay, we've, we've fiddled with you guys long enough. Let's, do, let's see if my God, the God of, of the Israelites, let the one true God see what he can do. And he did the sacrifice. And even to put a little bit more emphasis on it, he poured four jars of water three times on top of the altar. You remember God sent the fire, boom, consumed it all, sucked it up. And then they, what, killed all the prophets of Baal. So that all happened in 18, and even there had been a big drought in the land, God even released the drought and sent rain. So Elijah had just had this huge, mega victory with God. Think about that. He just had that. So he, Ahab told Jezebel about all of her prophets being killed, and so she's mad, so she's going after Elijah. May it be ever so severely if I don't have you dead like them and send a messenger. Now, that's a curious thing. First thing is why would she send a messenger, not a hitman? <laughs> have you thought about, I mean, think about that. You know, you'd think she'd just send somebody and wipe him out. But no, she sends a messenger to warn him that she's going to kill him. You know, that seems curious to me. But I think that maybe Jezebel was a little more afraid than she put on. So she sent the messenger hoping that Elijah would do exactly what he did, <laughs> run away. She got rid of him, if you think about it. He left. He took off. And he didn't leave just a short distance away, folks. He went away. He ran a far way. Several days journey away. So Elijah is running. Her, which is probably Jezebel's real motive. She probably, that, this is probably exactly, he played right into her hands, as it were. Now this mighty prophet runs. Just had a major, major victory. I mean, huge. And runs. You would think if God could call down fire, consume it, that he could take care of Jezebel. But no, we tend to do this. He got to such a point that he got to a place in the desert under the tree. In verse 4 it says, and he said he wanted to die. You ever been there? 
Lord, just take me. I've had enough. I'm tired. I've been there. I've done this. I've, I've spoken for you. I've done this. Lord, just take me home. I'm, I'm over this. Now, if, if Elijah really wanted to die, why didn't you just stay there and let it, Jezebel kill him? You think about that? I mean, I think weird like this. Okay, you'll find that I look at these things a little cockeyed sometimes. Um, I, I, but I look at things, and I'm going, if you really wanted to die, Elijah, you, you didn't have to run. You could have saved yourself all that exercise and, and just let God, let Jezebel kill you, and you'd been over with. But no, that's not how it really works, and we know this. But he was tired, he was hurting, he had really had a tough time. Here he was, laying under there going, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I'm going to go out and eat worms, right? You felt that way? Or, or poor, poor, pitiful me, poor, poor, pitiful me. You know, he was singing all these songs, you know, gloom, despair, and agony on me, you know, right? I, do, I'd, I figured between one of the three, I'd hit everybody in here somewhere, you know, that that's one of those things they'd heard before. But you see what I'm saying? Elijah had had enough. <laughs> he, he was just done with it. He really didn't feel like he was getting any of the respect he was deserved. He didn't feel anything. But then what happens? Verse 5, the angel of the Lord came and ministered to him. Folks, when things seem like it's over, <laughs> when things seem like they're never going to be any better, when we feel like we've had it up to here, when we feel like we can't move any farther, the angel of the Lord comes and rescues us and gives us provisions. And you know what that is. It comes in all sorts of ways. It's a friend that comes and hugs you when you need it. It's a sermon comes that ministers to you. It's a song on the radio that all of a sudden relieves some of that burden. It comes in all kinds of ways. But the angel remembers. Now, if you remember correctly, Jonah had one of those fits of despair, didn't he? And when was it? He had just won an entire town to the Lord. Have you thought about that? I mean, he just went more to, he turned an entire city around. And then thought, poor, poor, pitiful me. Now, folks, I'm sorry. If one of my sermons reached an entire town, I think I'd be flying pretty high. You know? I mean, can you imagine? He preached, and Athens was saved. I mean, think about that. Would that be amazing? I mean, seriously. Would you go run and hide and say, oh, Lord, I just knew you'd be so good and do that. Shame on you. I feel bad. But believe it or not, this happens a, very, a lot of times. Do you know John Wesley, who just had influenced a great many of Christians, had, gotten, had just finished a significant time of Christian? He wondered if he was even saved. He questioned his own Christianity. Spurgeon had won thousands and thousands to Christ, and he got down and depressed thinking he wasn't worthy to ever win anybody. Now, these are great preachers. These are great. You see, we get, we think that when the, we have the big event happen, that when something major like that happens, that, all oh, right, we can make it on through. But that's when <laughs> the devil can grab hold of you, isn't it? 
You see, we think that things are, we know God can work, we understand that, but you know, we just we have, well, I call it the spiritual letdown. I'll never forget, I used to take kids to camp all the time. And we'd go to camp, they'd come back, what are they? They're high, boy, they're on the mountaintop, right? They're ready to go. And they get back home, and nothing's different. And they what? Crash and burn. And you do this, you do that. You all have probably done it after a big revival meeting. You know, had a big revival meeting. And everybody, you had all these people saved, and the church is excited, and all that. And what happens? You kind of have this big crash and burn time. We do that. And then what happens, though? God will minister to you. <laughs> and then he sent Elijah to a cave. Well, or did he? Think about it. Elijah then went, boom, many miles, 40 days and 40 nights worth of walking. Probably about 200, 250 miles <laughs> to Mount Horeb. Some call it Mount Sinai. Some call, where did Moses get the ten? He went there. He thought, I'll get inspiration from God there. I'll go find God there. We feel tired. We feel depressed or fatigued. We feel like we've lost something when, we get, when things are going. He's going, God asks him, what are you doing here? Self-pity can put us in a dangerous place. Ever felt sorry for yourself? All the time. Remember, folks, I preached to Wes first. You all are just in for the ride, okay? I get there. I get there. Boy, if I could only get this person. If, I, if, it just, if we just had this, if I could just, you know, self-pity. We don't understand. All of a sudden, we don't believe God is who he says he is. We don't trust him to handle our issues. We have all this stuff in our life, and we feel God can't handle it. We know we can't handle it, but we're not sure we trust him to do it. And you look at verse 10. <laughs> I call that the I-verse. He says, I had this happen, and I can't do it, and me, you know. But they're trying to kill me and all these people, and I'm the only one left. I've done all this for you, and I've done. So we find our caves, and we hide in them. I don't know what your cave looks like. Mine can be a TV. I'll sit in my recliner and watch that TV and just sit there and let it just go. Or I can go and, and hide somewhere. Some, some of us go and get in bed all day. That's a way to hide. That's our cave that we hide in. But God then says, look, stand out there on the mountain. I'm passing by. Now, folks, there's not a person in this room that if they knew God himself was actually going to pass by, wouldn't be wherever he said he was going to be passing by to go hear that and see that, experience that. I have no doubt in my mind, anyone that knows the Lord is going to want to experience that. And Elijah, who knew the Lord, who was very close to the Lord, says, okay, we all long for that presence. But our problem is, are we hiding still, or are we standing on the mountain waiting to see what he's got to say to us? Are we there ready to experience it? We want God to do something big. We want him to come in the wind, come in the earthquake, come in the fire. They must have got that group's name, Earth, Wind, and Fire, from this. I don't know. But uh, we want him to come big. You know, we want to think, I'm going to catch it. Y'all are going to wake, keep awake. I'm going to do it one way or the other. 
But you see, we want the big show. We want God to show this mighty miracle, don't we? Let's face it, we do. We want the big stuff. Come on, God, show them. You know, zap those people. Just show them that, that you're really still in charge. Come on, God, just really just show that COVID it's gone. Just show this world that you're still here. To, come on, God, we want the big miracle. When every day we're experiencing the small voice of him helping us through this day, through this problem, through this thing, every day. But we don't seem to see it. But you've got to understand, the big show, if you do the big show, the problem with that is like the big magic shows. You've got to make it bigger and better the next time. I think of David Copperfield. He made a car disappear, then he made an elephant disappear, then he made an airplane disappear. Then he made the Statue of Liberty disappear. What's next, the whole world? He also, haven't heard much from him lately, have we? He couldn't do anything bigger than the Statue of Liberty. What's he going to do? And see, that's where our world is. He doesn't cater to, God doesn't cater to us. He's not doing what we think. He knows what's best. We've got to understand that we are not the center of the universe. <laughs> Remember when your children discovered that they weren't the center of the world? It, it broke their hearts because, let's face it, children think they're the center of the world, Right? Some still do, right? I know some of us still think we're the center of the world. I understand that. But, you know, we, we have to understand that we are not here for God just to bid to us and do his thing with us and kind of help us. That's not how it works. It's not about us. <laughs> we like to think it is sometimes. We want, it, we want it to be about us. It's not about us. It's about him. He comes and is still small voice he whispers and says are you still listening to me what are you doing here what are you trying to get what are you going after just because it's small doesn't mean God's not in it folks in our world today small is not good it's got to be bigger better than I used to do fellowship with with young people I called it the Bigger and Better Fellowship. And it, would, it was basically a scavenger hunt. And I'd give them all an ink pen or something like that and say, all right, take this door to door, tell them you're from this church and why you're doing this thing, and you would like them to trade you something bigger and better for it. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that. It is amazing. I don't know if we did it. I don't guess we did it with y'all. I know I did it in Savannah. And it was wild. They came back with an organ I'm not kidding. We had big, uh, th those room dividers. I heard of a friend of mine that did one, and they came back with an airplane fuselage. Another friend of mine, got, and I, I was mad that my group didn't bring it home, brought a motorcycle. I went, man, why didn't y'all bring me a motorcycle? But I mean, these kids were able to trade from a pen. Some of, them, some of the groups I've heard of do it started with a paper clip. But they traded it with people, and you all know people. You go to their house, there's stuff they want to get rid of, and they'll be glad to hand it off to you. Lawnmowers, you know, weed eaters, things. Oh, sure, here, I just want something bigger and better, you know. And they come back with this big stuff. We, then you have a big yard sale and sell it all afterwards. But we are in a world of 
bigger is better, but so many people in groups feel like they're insignificant because they're small. Look around. We're not large, right? We're small. What does that mean? It means God's got more people to work with individually, and let's go. Because you see, the bigger your group you are, <laughs> the more you can pawn it off on somebody else. I'll be honest. While I'm preaching at West, okay, I'm going to be honest. Janet and I were looking for a church before you all called me here. We were looking for, been looking for a year almost for a church. And we'd gotten it down, narrowed it, finally narrowed it down to two. One averages over 500, between 500 and 1,000. The other one, 50. Now, totally different churches, obviously. The big one I knew I could hide here, right? I could just be Wes and just kind of hang out, maybe sing in the choir, maybe do this, maybe, you know, just kind of hide. The little church, not so easy. They were already thinking of stuff for me to do. He knew me by name. He called me from the pulpit the day Janet visited, and that's when Janet went, this is too small a church for us. But you see what happens. It's easy to hide in a large body of people. You know, a crowd, it's easy to get lost in. I've already learned your names. It's easy to find it, which means, uh-oh, he knows my name, he can ask me to do something. You see, it's easy to decide because we're small, we're not good. God is not interested in the big parade. He's looking to change lives. He doesn't need a big show. He needs hearts that will follow him. Small and quiet Christians can still do strong and powerful things. Who led Billy Graham to Christ? Does anybody know? Hmm? Well, indirectly. It was really Mordecai Ham evangelism. Billy Sunday put a group together to have those evangelistic things in Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham, anybody know anything about him? Who won him to Christ? He was a big evangelist. Well, the, now the shoe store guy was before Moody. Dwight Moody won to get Kimball. Led Dwight Moody in a shoe store to Christ, Dwight L. Moody, which most, any Bible scholars know who he is. Kimball, whoever heard of him, he was just a Sunday school teacher. Just a Sunday school teacher. Folks, some of my heroes in faith, Sunday school teachers. I mean it. What I'm getting at, we don't, Mordecai Ham won, believe it or not, Mordecai Ham is thought to have won over 300,000 people to Christ through his evangelism. He was a preacher's kid. His, so I'm guessing either his dad or his granddad, who was also a preacher, led him to Christ. Guessing, don't know. There was no, I looked everywhere to find who led him to Christ. Could not find it. But he was tied to Billy Sunday. He was to Tied to, who was tied to Dwight Moody, who was tied to Meyer, then tied to Dwight Moody, who was tied to Kimball. This little Sunday school teacher 
And then, of course, in 1934, when this little 16-year-old lanky guy named Billy Graham was in his, in Mordecai's evangelistic crusade and probably said to have won more people to Christ through his preaching, obviously the Lord won them to Christ, but through his preaching, probably more than anybody ever. Think, I mean, I've seen him preach to 100,000 people in a, in a stadium. And, I mean, just crazy numbers. Small, quiet Christian decides one day to share the Lord. Then God gave Elisha tasks to do. Folks, we're in our pits of despair. God's going to give you something to do. To pull you out of it. So God gave him things. He had to go anoint some people. He had to go do something. He says, all right, enough of the pity party. It's time to get back to do what you're supposed to do. And while you're at it, you're going to anoint your replacement. <laughs> That'll humble you real quick, won't it? <laughs> you know? Oh, I was wanting to quit. You're going to let me. You know? It kind of got real then. Of course, we also know the replacement didn't just automatic replace him. He had to what? Serve under him for a while, learn the ropes, as it were, walk around and do that until, until this really nice little event. And I don't know if you remember all this, where the chariots of fire came and separated him and Elisha, and the whirlwind took Elijah right on up. So while we think about being down and out, and we want to die, and we want to quit, we ought to just think that Elijah still had God's ear was still so close to God that God says, this death thing's not happening to you. You're just coming with me. What a way to go. I think about that and go, wow. I, um, I don't tell this story real often, but my grandparents were my heroes of the faith. I am standing here today because of the prayers of my grandparents. I have no doubt about that. They, they were close to the Lord, both of them. Very, very strong Methodist Christians. My grandfather died in 1984 out on the water and drowned in three feet of water. There was no signs of any heart attack, no signs of any anything. It was in February, he was out oystering. <laughs> Pulling some things, he was waiting, had his little skiff. They say the morning that he went out, he couldn't get the motor to start. And knowing my grandfather, he would have normally thrown it overboard before, you know, after a while if it wouldn't start. But he kept yanking and yanking out. I will probably believe with all my heart that he had an appointment with God that day. I, I just believe that. This man was that who he was. He, he was 84 years old. It was in 1984. He was born in 1900. Nobody knew the exact date. Back then, they didn't have real great records. He was um, a waterman. He worked on the water all his life. From fourth grade, he started full-time. He had a fourth-grade education. Finest Christian man you'd ever want to meet. And I believe he went out there and met the Lord there was no strand of, you know, they say usually they drown, they grab their neck, go and do all this kind of stuff. No, none of that. Smile on his face, boom, just laying in the water. They actually found him. They were so afraid it wouldn't, because it was 
winter. I know how close he was to God. I know how close many people are, and I kind of still look and go, that was the way my granddad would have wanted to go. That's the way my granddad, and I know he was out there talking to God when it happened. I just, I just know that. That's who he was. We have got to understand that even when we get down and out, when we feel like the thing, the world's just crashing upon us, everybody's trying to get us, oh, gloom, despair, everything's happening. God is still there ministering to us, feeding us, looking out for us, taking care of the small little details that we don't think about. Every detail was taken care of by for Elijah. Every detail. That's the God we serve. And even though he had his time of, oh Lord, and God saying, what are you doing here? What are you trying to, put, what is wrong with you? He still took him to be with him in a whirlwind. He still gave him opportunities to go and anoint people and tell them about God. And he, he still gave him a chance to lead Elisha and prepare him to take over after him. We know the great things Elisha did too. You see, there's nothing too small or insignificant. And so many times we're trying to run and hide. Or we're trying to say, you know, maybe it's not me he wants. Yes, he does. And he will provide what he needs you to do. And he'll give you tasks to do. <laughs> and you may think your task's not that important. Yes, it is. Because you don't know. Billy Graham may be in the next lineage of it. Or some great minister. Or the next awesome Sunday school teacher. Like I said, some of my mightiest powerful prayer warriors and people I know are Sunday school teachers. Some of the mightiest prayer... I have gotten through some of the t most terrible storms because some ladies' class somewhere was praying for, my, for me. Or some WMU group was doing this. Or some choir was doing that. You see what I'm saying? Does it matter? God uses it and encourages all of us, all of us, to keep on keeping on because he loves you that much. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and what it teaches us. And, and Lord, for the still small voice, speak to us. Help us to hear what you want what you need from us, what you would have us to do. Give us opportunities, Lord, to serve you. You are awesome and mighty and wonderful. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your voice. And thank you for still speaking to us every day. In Jesus' name, amen.